So if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and open with me to Ephesians chapter 2? I know that was sort of a a long uh, reset, but for those of us who haven't been around, it's so important to understand this part of God's plan, that it's not God trying to figure it out as he goes, but that he's been planning this, and it's always been through Jesus, because we'll see how important that is again today. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, or you could Google Ephesians 2. The main text is also written in the bulletin today if you want to look at it there. But the first important word uh, that you must look at anytime uh, you uh, read the Bible, if you see this word, you want to take special note of it, and that's in verse 11, which is where we start today, and it's the word, therefore. Therefore is always pointing back to something before it, and in this case, it's pointing back to chapter, all the way from chapter 1 to this point. So we've explained a little bit about the background of chapter 1. And then he says, remember. He says, because of all that that has happened, I want you to remember it. Because, as you'll see, if you don't understand that, you'll never understand what I'm about to say. So let me read with you verse 11. He says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which was made in the flesh by hands. Now, what is he talking about here? Uh, There's two primary groups from a Jewish perspective, and Paul is Jewish, so he's writing from a Jewish perspective. There's two primary groups. There's Jews, and there's everybody else. And the everybody else is Gentiles. And the Jews, as part of their ceremonial uh, religious requirement, were circumcised on the eighth day, uh, and that was one of their marks that they were Jewish. Now, theoretically, everybody else was uncircumcised. So that's what he's talking about here. He's saying... You Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you were born into the world as non-Jews, as Gentiles, and you were called the uncircumcision. And this is kind of interesting. Why does he bring up this term? He's probably bringing up the tension that existed between these two groups, meaning that the Jews would kind of call the Gentiles names. And one of the names they would call them is the uncircumcision. And usually when there's hostility between two groups, it usually turns to name-calling. This is what's happening between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, Jews would often call Gentiles pigs. And so there was tons of hostility between these two groups. And there's reason for it. And as we'll see, the reason for it is because God has instructed his people, the Jewish people, to be separate from all other nations as a way of showing God's, representing God's holiness. So it's not uh, completely uh, off the mark that they've sort of separated themselves in this way, but it's been taken to a point, as, as all separation does, to a point of tension and hostility, and these were not two groups that enjoyed each other, that shared the table with one another. And so he's telling them, Remember this tension and, look at verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So these two verses together, Paul is telling them to remember what disadvantage they had. And he's primarily writing now to Gentiles because he's writing to people living in the city of Ephesus, the Roman city of Ephesus uh, in Asia Minor. And so the majority of the people in this church were Gentiles. And he's saying, remember. Remember how you were not a part of the original people of God. Remember that you had all these disadvantages to being a Gentile, and he lists off five here. So let me uh, look at these one by one. He says, you were separated from Christ. And here what he's saying is you were separated, and Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. You were separated from 
the messianic salvation. The Jews believed that God would send a Messiah, a Savior, into the world, the anointed one that would rescue the people of Israel. And so Paul's reminding them, you were separated from that Messiah because you yourself were not Jewish. You had no access to this Jewish Messiah when he came. And then he says, you were separated from Israel. Israel being the chosen people of God. He's saying, you were separated from their Messiah and you were separated as chosen people. You were not part of the elected people of God. But now you are. And then he goes on to say, you were foreigners to God's covenant, which means you were separated from the promises that God made to his chosen people, Israel, that he made to people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. You had no access to those promises that God had made, but now you do. And he goes on to say, you were without hope, meaning you had no hope of this restored kingdom, this messianic king, this eschatological renewal. Eschatological just means in the end times. You had no access to that. You had no hope of the resurrection of the dead. You had none of that. You were without hope. And he goes on to say, you were without God in the world. Here what he means is you were without the one true God. Of course, them being... Uh, Greeks and Romans, they had sort of a pantheon of gods, but those weren't the one true God of Israel. They had no access to him. They were without God in the world as Gentiles. So, boom, 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 boom. Here are all the disadvantages that you once lived in, and I need you to remember those in order to understand what a great gift, what a great power has been worked on your behalf by God through Christ. So look at verse 13. Best two words you see in Scripture, and you see this over and over again. It says, but now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, you who were once far are now near. In life, we, ha we have to often remember, we talked about this last week a bit, where you came from in order to understand the true greatness of where you are. And here are the Gentiles, separated from God in every way, not elect, not chosen by God. They had no hope of a Messiah to come for them, but now they do. Now they've been brought near. And this dramatic change, this dramatic shift is so important to understand, and often we lose sight of it. Often we forget about this great chasm, this great distance that we experience with God. Because maybe we've been walking with him for a while. And so we've forgotten what it felt like to be far away. Try to remember that. Try to remember where you were before you heard the gospel, before you believed that you were without hope, without God in the world, that you were separated from the Christ. And this distance that he's talking about, this far and near, this is a relational dif uh, distance. He's not talking here about a geographic distance. He's not saying God was once far off in heaven and now he's close. It's a relational distance. Because God is all around us, he always has been all around us. But yet it seems sometimes like he's a million miles away. Have you ever felt that way? You can feel this way in a marriage. You could be sitting right next to your spouse and feel a million miles away. You can feel this with a friend. Have you experienced this distance? So this is the kind of 
far and near that he's talking about. It's this relational distance. And in the same way, you might be sitting here tonight feeling a million miles from God, yet you're sitting with his family in his house, the church, singing songs to him, and yet he feels so far from you. I've been there. I've sat in that seat. If you find yourself there tonight, just know we've all been there, and it doesn't have to always be that way. You might feel far, but you don't have to stay there. And the thing to remember about how this farness turns to nearness is that God always takes the first step. He always makes the first move. And he made that first move a long time ago when he sent himself, God the Son, into the world. We celebrate that at Christmas. That God, though he was in the world, came near in an even more relational way that we might know him more personally in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So he always makes the first step, and he's making the first step. Maybe you coming back to church in the new year, and you're not sure how you got there. Maybe a friend invited you. That's God actually moving in your situation to bring you closer to him that you might see him. And the great part about it is maybe you being far is because you feel like you've been living your own life, you've been doing it your own way, you've been refusing to listen to God, and so you feel like that sin, that mistake is keeping you away. Here's the great news. He's already made the first move to separate that inscalable wall that you feel between you and him, and he's torn it down by the blood of Christ. So now you can be near again. He's already made that first move. And so don't buy the lie that you have to feel far from God. Because that feeling is now a choice that you have. You can choose to be near to him. If you want to know him again in a way that you once knew him before. Or if you want to know him for the first time. You have a choice to do that. I just love that promise here that that farness can turn to nearness. And that was Paul's reminder that for these Gentiles, that farness had turned to nearness when Jesus came into the world. You see how great that news is? And it can be easy to forget it now that we're 2,000 years later, probably the majority of us Gentiles, that at one point we, we, we could not get near to the God of Israel, the one true God, until Christ came. It's such good news, and Paul's reminding these Gentile believers, you were far away. You were so far away, and now you're near by the blood of Jesus. So that's the first reminder that he gives us that farness can turn to nearness. And the second reminder is, is, is a reminder of, of unity. Now, think again about these two groups that Paul's talking about, the Jew and the Gentile. This severe hostility that was between them, and it, it's hard for us to understand. There was real division, real strife. If they saw each other on the street, there was real anger, a serious lack of harmony. Maybe the best modern analogy to this would be um, probably a American Christian walking through the streets of Iran. This hostility between Muslims and Christians, um, we experience it in part here in America. Maybe we see that hostility. But in the Middle East today, it's, 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 it's more hostile than we can ever imagine. That's what this hostility felt like. So it was real in a way that we don't often experience ourselves in this country. And in light of this hostility, let me read now, if you'd read with me, 
starting in verse 14, Paul says this. For he himself, he's talking about Jesus, is our peace, who was made, has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this first uh, reminder right at the beginning of verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. This is like a title or a thesis statement to the next three verses. Jesus is our peace. Now, how does Jesus establish this peace? And as we'll see, this peace that we're talking about is a different kind of a peace than we tend to think when we hear the word in our mind. We'll get there in a sec. But here's how he establishes that peace. The first thing Paul says is he made us both one. What does that mean? He made us both one. We'll drop down here to verse 15. He explains that statement a little bit further. Halfway through verse 15, he says this, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. That he might create one new man in the place of two. One new humanity in the place of the old humanity. And so here's what that meant. This new humanity, this new creation that, that, that he's talking about here, this is a transcendent reality. It doesn't erase the original, but it pushes everything up into a new paradigm. So here's how it would go. He's saying this, if you were born a Jew, yes, in the flesh you're a Jew. And you have the sign of it because you're circumcised. You have Jewish blood, you have a human spirit, and you have flesh. And your flesh is corruptible because you will live and you'll eventually die. And there's another group of you, there's the Gentile. You were born a Gentile. You have Gentile blood. Maybe you've got Norwegian blood like me. Thank you very much. And uh, you got a human spirit. Yes, even the Norwegians have human spirits. And you have corruptible flesh. Yes, even Norwegians die too. So, we're different, right? I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. We've got seemingly two types of humanity with two different bloods in them. And Jesus says, I will create a brand new humanity that supersedes and transcends any other of those distinctions. And he says, this is what's happened through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that a new humanity has been created. And that new humanity has Christ's blood. And that new humanity has God's spirit dwelling in them. And that new humanity, though they will die, has the promise of a new flesh that's not corruptible. A new flesh that's like Jesus' resurrected flesh. And you see how this new humanity is different from the old, and it transcends it. And how this work is, of course, a divine mystery. There's no sort of biology books on this new humanity. These are promised truths by a trustable God given to man. But you see how it transcends all things. This is the transcendent nature of this new humanity and it's so important to understand because if you don't understand how that works, you will never understand this unity that God is talking about, that it's greater than the unity that any human hands can create. So I was thinking of an analogy that might help us understand 
how this works. And I was thinking about two high school football players who are rivals growing up. They go to different high schools and neighboring towns and, and they're rivals. And they're the best on their team, they're both college prospects and they end up both getting recruited to the same college. And they go to the college and they show up on the first day and now they're teammates. And any of that rivalry, that hostility has just been transcended by going to play at the next level. And you know what, that happens again. Maybe it's a husky and a duck that fight against each other. We, uh, year after year, and then they both get drafted by the Seahawks, and they go and they play, and they've transcended that hostility, and now there's a new set of rules, a new set of goals, and those hostilities tend to fade away. This is what Paul is saying when he's saying when we accept the blood of Jesus, we transcend those old hostilities, those things that divided us, those differences. They don't go away. We don't stop being Jewish or Gentile. We just have transcended those and we think about life on a totally different level. And so we can have a kind of peace that is not man-made, that is God-made. So important to understand. So he makes this new humanity. That's the positive side of what Jesus does through the cross and the resurrection. But it doesn't just change it. He also tears down any walls that were there. So look at this. Second half of verse 14, he says, And he has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So when he breaks down, and verse, thir- uh, verse 16, I think, takes it another level that's important to understand. Um, the end of verse 16 says this, thereby killing the hostility. So he's tearing it down and he's killing it. And, and killing is important to bring up because it's not, um, it's not like it can be built back up. It, it's dead. It's gone by the blood of Jesus. We're not talking here about simply managing the hostility because this is what we tend to do in our man-made peacemaking, our man-made unity. It's managing the hostility. In fact, that's what walls tend to do. They help manage the hostility between peoples. This is a form of coexisting, which is not what Jesus came to die for. He didn't come to die that we might coexist with one another. That's management. That's managing the differences. He wants to transcend those differences. Coexisting is good, and you'll see this all the time with the true gospel. Coexisting is not a bad thing. It's better than not coexisting, but it's still a lesser good than what God ultimately wants. He wants to kill the hostilities between all peoples. He wants a wallless, fenceless, singular humanity. And this is why we get our misconception of what peace is. Say, we live in a time of peace. We live in a time of relative peace, which just means it's not as bad as it used to be, or it was at one point in time. But it's a tenuous peace. It can end at any moment. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to end all war. He came to bring true peace, which is this idea of shalom, which is everything working in perfect harmony and unity with itself. And as I was thinking about this idea of a wall, I I thought of the Berlin Wall. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, the history behind the Berlin Wall after World War II, you had the Communist East, and you had... uh, the Democratic West, and there was so much tension, even within the city of Berlin, Germany, 
between these two warring factions that the way to manage the peace is they decided to build a wall in 1961 that would separate these two sides of the city of Berlin, the war-stricken city and nation of Berlin, Germany. And it was a 66-mile-long wall that separated these two people that were both German, they just had different ideological leadership, and many people would try to cross over into West Germany, and really nobody tried to cross over into East Germany. But this wall was there, and you know, you may have heard the famous Nixon speech of Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And that was a pretty good impression. I'd like a <laughs> laugh at that. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, you had guys like David Bowie and Springfield and even David Hasselhoff, who's a huge German pop star. They would come and play concerts at the wall, protesting the wall. It's a big deal. And eventually the wall gets torn down in 1989. And so, obviously, the wall's torn down, and so there's no more enmity and hostility between the East and the West, right? Of course not. Of course it doesn't just go away. This is the lesson we learn when we study history, that wars come and go, but hostility never leaves. Governments try their best to create peace, but they always fall short. The best they can do is to manage it. And so this peace that Jesus wants to bring, this end to hostility is so much different than what human hands can accomplish. And so this visual metaphor of the wall that Jesus tears down is so much more than just a visual metaphor. It's so much more real. He's wanting to create something new that lives above and beyond all those managed hostilities. And what's so interesting, this new humanity, uh, Paul will say right here in Ephesians, he'll call it a new citizenship, that we have an old citizenship, maybe it's to a country, maybe it's to a people group, Uh, maybe it's to a language group, that all goes away and we have this new citizenship in Christ. And as I was looking and studying uh, things that happened around the Berlin Wall, I couldn't believe it, but I found this speech by John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy. And as I was reading it, having read the context of Ephesians, I couldn't believe this speech. Let me read for you verse 19, and then I'm going to read you the speech. Read verse 19, 219 Ephesians. says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now listen to these words that John F. Kennedy spoke. I believe it was in... Yeah, 1963, right outside the Berlin Wall, just two years after it had been built, wishing that it hadn't been built, which is a good wish, he said this, 22 months ago, after the erection of the Berlin Wall, on June 26, 1963, U.S. President John F. Kennedy visited West Berlin And he spoke to a West Berlin audience of 450,000 people. And he declared in his famous speech, Ich bin ein Berliner, is the name of the speech. He declared his support for West Germany, tying the two nations, United States and, and and, and West Germany together. And here are the words that he said. 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was... Civis Romanus Sum, which means I am a Roman citizen. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. 
is the President of the United States saying these things, declaring that we have a shared citizenship as the democratic people of the world and we support those countries who share our political preferences. And as I read this, I was just struck by the parallelisms of what Paul said 2,000 years ago to a church in the Roman Empire, many of whom were Roman citizens, just how shocking and different that is. The 2,000 years ago, John F. Kennedy would say, the greatest thing you could ever say is, I am a Roman citizen, yet the Apostle Paul was standing there claiming the greatest thing you have going for you is that you are no longer a Roman citizen, but you're a citizen of heaven. And I just thought, wow. How that highlights the difference between the peace that governments can bring, that great leaders and presidents can bring, and what Jesus Christ brings with him. The wall was eventually torn down, as I said, and the Cold War ensued, and perhaps one of the scariest times to live in America where the threat of nuclear war was real. And so it didn't go away, did it? It continued to be hostility between these people groups. But Jesus will tear down, and he has torn down that wall of hostility And one of the ways he does it, Paul says, is by, verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Now here's what he's saying. This wall that had been set up between Jews and Gentiles was primarily due to this Mosaic law that God gave to the people of Israel in the desert of Sinai. Many, many years ago when they were released from slavery in Egypt. And this law was good. This is from God. But what it created, and partly because it was what it was intended to create, was separation from other nations to show moral holiness amongst all the nations. And so it also created these walls. And when we understand what Jesus came to do, we understand that by living the life that he lived, the perfect life, in full obedience to this Mosaic law, he fulfilled every part of the law and therefore no longer are we required to fulfill the law because in his fulfillment and his sacrifice on the cross, God accepts that and moves us into a new season, a new time, which is called the new covenant. So these laws that were built up, they were moral and they were ceremonial, including circumcision, had created this real sense of separation between Jews and everybody else. But the great news is that Jesus removes that requirement from us. You'll see this theme over and over again when you read the New Testament, that people were literally trying to to tell new Christians who were Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus, who himself was Jewish. And Paul again and again says, no, that has been fulfilled in Christ. We are under a new covenant. So these laws and commandments had created this culture that other cultures could not participate in, and it created real division. Now, the moral characteristics of this law do not change, but there is new commandments, the commandments of Jesus, that show us how to live as this new humanity. And so we are not a culture now as Christians that is inaccessible by everyone else. We can live no matter where we start in this new transcendent culture. So no matter what culture anyone comes from, they can be a part of this new humanity. They can be a part of this new 
culture that Christ has created that should be represented in a church. It's, it, it's a little bit like this. When you get married, uh, you come from your family culture. And it is uh, different than the family culture of your wife or your husband. And so around the holidays, you might have experienced this. It can become very tenuous between families and the new married couple and their family because you've got two different cultures trying to interact. Now, here's some marriage advice. The best way to tear down that hostility that you feel is to be very clear with your spouse that we need to create a new culture. Doesn't mean we have to forget where we came from. In fact, we should not forget. Paul would say that, remember where you came from, but remember that that is not our new family. We've got a new culture. We've got a new way of doing things, and that will reduce the tension in your marriage. That's what Paul's saying, but on a grand cosmic scope, that Jesus Christ has created this new culture, and that the commandments that were placed upon the people of Israel are no longer required in this new culture in many respects, though several of them continue on. Okay. It's a lot of, this is a lot of theology. <laughs> I know that, but it's important to understand because we're getting to the kicker here. We've got two people groups, Jews and Gentiles, there's hostility between them. Jesus Christ comes in and he abolishes everything that stands in the way of these two groups so that he might create one new people out of both peoples. Jew and Gentile can now become followers of Jesus, a part of this new family. And we see now, as we read on, starting in verse 19, the results of this new people group that we call Christians today, that are made up of all people groups, says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the picture of the church. This is the picture of this new building that God is creating. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a picture that the world has never seen before because the world has always lacked unity. It's always lacked peace. But when they look at the church, hopefully they see this new building that's so tightly weaved together with different colored bricks, different cultural backgrounds that come together to create something new. So you say, how does this actually happen? How do we actually create this in our church and the, and, and the church universal? Which is to say, how do we participate in this making of a new humanity? Here's the trick. We have to seek. What do you think I'm going to say next? We have to seek with everything we are. What do you think I'm going to say next? We have to seek love. We can't seek unity. Because if we seek unity... We'll always fall short of unity. Because unity is not a thing in and of itself. It's a byproduct of something else. And that byproduct is love. Some of you are like, I like where this is going, Dave. This is sounding real, sounding real good. But now the question is, a love of what? A love of what? A love of others. No. Well, it's got to be a love of unity. <laughs> no, that's just another way of saying seeking unity. It's got to be a love of peace. That's what we need to love. We need to have a shared love of peace. No, 
Well, then, I know, Dave, it's got to be a shared love of love, right? That'll do it. Unfortunately, that's not going to do it. There is one thing that creates true unity, and that is a love of Jesus. Should have known I was going there. A love of Jesus. This is what is meant by the thesis statement. Remember the title? Jesus is our peace. He is our peace because the love of him, the shared love of him, is the only thing that creates true unity, true peace, true reconciliation, and true joy. And it only creates that if the people involved have the love of Jesus as their primary love, meaning at the very top of their list. This is why it works. I'll use a lesser example. Big game last weekend, University of Washington, my alma mater, playing in the, the playoffs. My parents went down to the game in Atlanta, and here's what would happen. Every time that they'd see somebody else wearing purple, because their love of the Huskies was pretty high on their list. They'd see people, and it didn't matter where they were from, what they were like, what their race was, their nationality. Didn't matter their heritage, their political affiliation. They didn't care about any of that. They just saw purple, and they went into this purple haze situation, and they were like best friends. They were telling me stories about, oh, I met all these people. I was like, my parents don't meet people. It's because they had a love of something that made all those lesser things sort of dissolve away in the purple haze. Now, imagine if your love of Jesus was at the top of your list. Imagine if Jesus is who Paul says he is, and your love of this Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as King, as cosmic creator of all things, if that is what you loved more than anything, do you see how this would work? That when you saw somebody and you found out that they loved Jesus, it doesn't matter any of the distinctions, any of the differences, nothing matters underneath that love because all you can see is their love, their shared love for your Savior. It all melts away. It's that, I call it the one spirit haze that Paul talks about. We can't see anything else except that we see that this person has the spirit of God dwelling in them because we see their true love for Jesus. There'll always be differences, but they're just washed away by the magnitude of what loving Jesus really means. That's the real unity that results. Now, the kicker is this. If you've got Jesus on number two or number three or down the list at number 10, it's not your primary love. You might initially have some unity with people, but eventually something will come up that affects a higher love in your life that will create hostility between you and another Christian. This is how it works. If you love theology more than you love Jesus, eventually you will disagree on some theological nuance, and if you care about that more, you will have hostility with a brother or sister in Christ. If you love money more than Jesus, eventually something will happen that your money is threatened and you will turn against those people whom also love Jesus. If you love status more than Jesus, eventually push will come to shove and you will choose status over those people who both also share the love of Jesus. If you love your kids more than Jesus, eventually somebody will do something that creates hostility because of your kids. And of course, if you love self more than you love Jesus, and this is usually all of us, Somebody will threaten ourself and we will go after them even if they share a love for Jesus. So it has to be the primary love. 
to create the kind of unity that Paul is promising here in Ephesians. And so Paul, talking to this local church, much like ours, he's saying that if we get this love question right, loving Jesus in the right way, with all of our heart, it will prove this answer true to the question of unity, peace. It'll prove that the end and the beginning of unity begins with a love for Jesus. That's how Jesus is our peace. He becomes the only thing worthy and capable as an object of love that human beings can worship without hating each other. That's how he is our peace. Thanks be to God that we have that, that we get to worship this Jesus who rightly takes upon worship all peoples at all times. And so we participate in this glorious reality. Jesus is our peace. How you doing on that? Do you love Jesus more than you love anything else? It's challenging to do. And you probably don't have perfect peace in your life, even with other followers of Jesus. But I guarantee you, if you move him up the list, you'll see peace follow in your life. We'll see unity in this church, and it'll be a great testimony to this truth that what if the whole world, what if every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Can you imagine the peace that would follow? Some of you in the, in the room are maybe not yet there yet. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't love Jesus, and that's okay. I think one of the great applications of this text to us is that we need to do a better job as the church of being loving to you if you don't yet know Jesus. You see, this distinction of Jew and Gentile, that's not really the main hostility we feel in our culture, is it? That's not the main hostility we feel. The main hostility we probably feel, or probably those outside of the church would say that they feel, is this. I feel like the church, I feel like Christians view me as unworthy. I feel like the Gentile. Christians, they're like the Jews. They don't think I'm worthy. I don't know how, how do I get into their culture. They've set up all these rules and regulations and, and how do I participate in this Jesus movement? And people are feeling that all over this city. People that want to know how to live in this world with God, but they don't feel like they belong with us. This is the new paradigm we live in. Many of us were probably dedicated and baptized in the church. We were sort of born into Christianity. But I bet many of us in this room weren't. If I did a show of hands, I won't do it right now, but if I did a show of hands of how many of you were born into Christianity and how many of you weren't. It would be a mixed bag. Just like if you showed, asked for a uh, show of hands in Ephesus and you said, how many of you are Jews and how many of you are Gentiles? There were a lot more Gentiles there and there's a lot more Gentiles in our city if we as Christians function in this paradigm as the Jews. And so because we're in this city, because we know that it's Jesus who unites people, we have to be very, very, very careful that we do not set up rules and commandments and regulations and expressions 
and cultures that are dividing walls for people to come in and find that Jesus and the love of Jesus is the true thing that unites all peoples. You see how easy it is and how often this happens? That we are setting up walls all the time and keeping people from the peacemaker himself. I hope this church doesn't become a place that does that. I hope this church becomes a place where your ethnicity, your nationality, your birth religion, your upbringing has absolutely no bearing on your salvation. But what does is your relationship to Jesus. Because that's all that matters. Jesus is our peace. And not just our peace, Jesus is the peace of every man, woman, and child that never sets, in, sets a foot in a church this year. How do we break down that wall? Because the truth is we live in this new age, we live under this new covenant, we live as a new humanity created in Christ, by Christ, for God's glory. Not created by human hands, but by God's hands. And this new humanity is full of Jew and Gentile, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, white, black, Asian, communist, capitalist, Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, white collar, blue collar, every caste, Chinese, American, every combination of external label, internal identification can and will be united by God through Jesus Christ into a new humanity which is foreshadowed by the church and it is all based on a shared love of Jesus Christ. That is good news, not just for us, but for our world. May we be a people that work this out day in and day out through obedience to Christ, watching his example, being faithful and worshiping rightly the one who is worthy of our love, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are so thankful that in an age where it feels like hostility continues to ramp itself up, that no matter how much we try and market and pretend that we have this world that is free of hostility and that we coexist, that, that if we're just really, really honest, it's all right there under the surface. It hasn't gone away. It's no different than it was 2,000 years ago. We aren't sort of figuring out how to be perfectly unified people, and it's because we're looking to the wrong answer. Help us to turn our eyes and see that it's a shared love of Jesus that is the only thing the only thing that can bring us together by transcending our differences and becoming one new humanity through the blood of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.